Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is a tailor, which is a first for the pod. Welcome, Nicholas. Would you like to introduce yourself and uh, talk a bit about yourself? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, um, I'm Nicholas Simon. I'm a bespoke tailor. Um, I trained on the world-famous Savile Row in London, in Mayfair. Um, I've been working now for 12 years as a bespoke tailor. Um, that came after a five-year apprenticeship. Um, and now run my own business based in Warwickshire in England, which is actually bang in the middle of the country. I think I'm actually in rugby, the place where the sport was created. Um, and I am the furthest from the sea that you can get anywhere in the UK, right in the middle of the UK. Um, and I've started my own business under Nicholas Simon Tailoring. Now, 17 years in tailoring and a five-year apprenticeship. What brought you into tailoring in the first place? I always I always get asked this, uh, how I got into tailoring. Now, as a very as a young kid, my dad had a textiles business based in Leicestershire, um, which was the centre of the hosiery capital for the country um, back in the 80s and 90s. So I grew up in factories around uh, rolls of textiles, rolls of fabric, you know, running up and down bolts of cloth and not really paying much attention. But I've always had an, a love and appreciation for textiles. And when I left school, I went and worked in retail. I worked for Zara. I worked for Reese. Um, I did visual merchandising. And in my early 20s, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, said to me, you know, is, are you OK doing this? Is this how you, you know, do you want to live your life like this? And I said, well, yeah, I'm fine. And she said, well, what do you really love? What do you, what, you know, what's the one thing that you really love? And I said, well, I love suits. I love wearing suits. I love seeing people in suits. You know, I want to dress smart all the time. And she said, well, why don't you be a tailor? And I honestly genuinely, relax, genuinely reacted by saying, I'm not old and I'm not Jewish. So I can't be a tailor because I thought I had to be an old gent and I had to be Jewish to be a tailor. And she said to me, don't be stupid go to Savile Row, which I'd never heard of. So I went to Savile Row. A couple of weeks later, I walked down the street and I knew I was never, ever, ever going to work anywhere else. That was the place for me. It just had this buzz, you know, tailoring shops lining both sides of the street, just off from Regent Street in London. And I knew that's where I had to work. So a few months after that, I studied at a college in East London called Newham. I did a, an eight-week basic tailoring course there and then fell on my feet and landed what I would say was an internship at Norton & Sons, which is 16 Savile Row. I say internship in inverted commas, free work. I worked for free for six months, sweeping the floor, making tea, helping with basic sewing tasks. Um, and then I spent the, the, the next 11 to 12 years at Norton and Sons, working my way up to become head cutter um, by the age of 30. Now, it sounds like your girlfriend at the time was very astute and uh, you've got a lot to thank her for. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, the story goes, she actually wanted to do to be a tailor. She wanted to work in tailoring, but actually went down the lines of fashion and worked for Burberry at, um, a, a bit when I was doing my apprenticeship. She was working at Burberry in London. So, she had her motives for sending me into tailoring because it's something she wanted to do but never got around to doing. So, 
I have to ask, what does she do now? She's now a lecturer um, at Nottingham Trent University in luxury fashion brand management. So she is all things luxury and I'm all things handmade. Sounds like you both sort of found your own trajectory there. Now, it was interesting you said about being in the, an unpaid intern on Savile Row. Is, is that the way things are done? I mean, that must be a sort of rite of passage. If you can turn up every day for nothing for six months, they'll sort of let you further in? It's, it's difficult on Savile Row because realistically you're on a street of 12 tailors or 12 shops, should I say. And of those 12 shops six or seven are actually traditional handmade bespoke tailors um, and you can you can guess that it's not very easy to get an apprenticeship in these places because there aren't many tailors to teach you and there's not the budget for people to take hundreds of apprentices on and not the space so you had to do when I was there you ha- in, in 2008-9 you, you had to do an internship you had to show them that you were willing to put the effort in because the tailors would be putting a lot of money and a lot of time into training you. You know, my I'm a cutter, a pattern cutter. So my apprenticeship lasted five years. So I had to learn how to I learn about all the different fabrics. So fabrics for overcoats, fabrics for shooting suits, fabrics for dinner suits, fabrics for suits, fabrics for sports jackets. I had to learn Um, how to measure people for different garments. I had to learn how to cut the actual patterns for each garment. So a different pattern for the overcoat, a cape, plus fours, Um, you know, single-breasted jackets, double-breasted jackets. I had to learn how to do all of that and had to learn how to um, actually put the garment on the customer and how I would tweak that and make it look better, how I would make it more comfortable. And also in that time, I was doing a a jacket making apprenticeship as well so I spent two years making my doing my jacket making apprenticeship so that I can understand how to put the garments together properly and therefore improve my cutting so that was five five years with an extra two years inserted doing a coat making apprenticeship for a company to invest in you to pay you for those five years whilst you're training they have to know that you're the right fit and so internships were, at the time, the only way that companies could afford to see how you fit in and see how useful you could be and which which member of the team they could probably put you with in order to learn. So I always knew I wanted to be a cutter. I wanted to wear the suits. I wanted to see the customers. I wanted to sell the suits and, and, and try them on and also get to travel to the different countries to see the different customers. Whereas the tailors they tend to sit in the workrooms, don't tend to see the customers and actually do the sewing and put together the garments by hand. So I knew what I wanted to do and I knew that I had to I had to prove myself before I would even get taken on as an apprentice. So that was the essence of the internship. And it was meant to be for one year, uh, not paid, but after six months, they, they the opportunity came up for me to be the apprentice to the head cutter of Norton Sons in Savile Row. Sounds like you got a bit lucky there. It's interesting, though, this sort of get-to-know period. Um, of course, it does mean that you, you're you actually in a position where you can work for free for six months or 12 months, which I imagine sort of also limits it a bit who can, who can do this. Well, I mean, I worked two different jobs whilst I was 
doing my internship. I worked at the weekend uh, for Reese and in the evenings and I did bar work as well. And I also throughout my internship was working with the tailors doing basic jobs to help them to learn more. And they would pay me a bit of a couple of quid here and there just to keep me going. So, yeah, it was it's it's a dedication because like you say not everyone can afford to live in one of the most expensive cities in um in europe um or not europe as the case may be unfortunately um and pay the way whilst not getting paid at a full-time job so it, it really does show you who's willing to put the effort in and and who's expecting to be just paid from the from the get-go you had this fascination with suits you were determined that you wanted to wear suits and make suits and sell suits what what is the allure with with suits? I guess growing up in Leicester uh, in the sort of uh, late nineties, early two thousands, no one wore suits. Yeah. It was it was just not something that that anybody did. Formality was not there. But I, I guess it was from you know watching James Bond as a kid and just thinking, wow, that guy looks absolutely impeccable. And I just I would walk. Uh, through Leicester and I would see somebody wearing a suit and I would I would have this jealous feeling I would just want to be wearing that suit or I'd want to be looking better than that person because they just looked immaculate and it was never so much about the trends it was never so much about standing out or being fashionable it was just every time I put on a suit I felt indestructible and I felt that people took me seriously and I just loved the way you can accessorize it and uh, and none of my friends were wearing suits at the time, so I was able to to stand out a little bit that way. And, and ever since, ever since that point, I've always been overdressed for everything. You know, even if it's going out for drinks with friends in the evening, I'll always be in a shirt and a jacket, you know, probably not a tie. Most of the time I'm in a tie. And I'll always get the jokes for me for being overdressed all the time. But that's just something in my nature that I have to be... <laughs> Yeah. smart it's how i feel most comfortable and even during lockdown i wore a suit pretty much every day it's kind of a sort of uh, a thing of the trade isn't it i mean if you were a second-hand car dealer you'd always be driving a flash motor if you'd been a I don't know, <laughs> physics master you would always be uh, talking physics but uh, that's a really crummy example but uh, i mean if your business is selling lovely suits then of course that's how you'll you'll be dressed it i just think it's it's such a wonderful traditionally british thing to be is in a three-piece suit you know and and i what i've seen is you know guys look at the way you dress so as you walk down the street guys will check out the way you're dressed if you're wearing a nice suit and so will women women will look and go oh that he looks nice and you can see guys looking going yeah he looks all right like you, there's a bit of respect that comes from wearing a very, very nice suit and a very well-tailored, well-thought-out suit, not just a off-the-peg one that doesn't fit very well, but th there's an air of intrigue that people get when they see someone in a very, very well-fitted suit. I think there's a respect there that kind of goes, wow, you've really taken care about what you're wearing, and I, I kind of respect that. I don't know why, and I don't know what it is, but you look this whole uh, immaculate in a way that... And people want, I think people, a lot of people want to feel that way when they dress. I guess at some level, it's a fact that you're sort of showing that you have the assets or money available to actually dress like that, because there is a huge difference between an ill-fitting, obviously cheap 
quite nasty suit and one that actually fits really nicely and is obviously of a quality fabric and so forth. Yeah, I think it, it sort of, you know, not just the suit as well. You have to wear the right shoes with it. You have to have the right accessories because if you could have a wonderful suit and terrible shoes and they would stick out like a sore thumb, people would sort of look at you and go, wow, there's something really gone wrong there. Um, and it's not, for me, it's not about looking, you know, expensive or wealthy. For me, it's all about just confidence in what I wear. That's why I've always worn suits because I want to feel confident and that's how I do when I'm wearing a suit. I don't feel confident when I'm wearing jeans or a jumper or I don't feel me. So, you know, the fact that people pay attention to me more when I wear a suit, I guess, is is a bonus to to doing it. But, yeah, it, for me, so wearing a suit is about the subtleties. It's not all about looking at someone and going, your suit looks amazing. It's about looking at someone and saying, you look amazing because of the way you feel when you wear it. So it's it's the confidence that exudes and that comes out of you when you're wearing something that you've not only have you designed, but it's been fitted to you and you know you're completely happy with and confident in. That's the confidence that is exuded when you wear a bespoke suit. Um, and I feel that has just as much impact on the people that see you as does the actual suit itself. Interesting. You're you're certainly selling me on the concept now. I have to admit, I've never never ever been a, a sort of suit guy myself. Um, I I really barely wear ties. But uh, you mentioned a little while back about suits weren't part of the trends. But are suits also trend driven? I mean, do suits change over time? Um, you mentioned footwear. I see these guys wearing sort of very tight suits. Uh, bare ankles and say trainers now that must be pretty painful for a, a classic suit chap like yourself painful is definitely the word i would use yes i mean you know like anything people can try and push the envelope and wear something that's cooler something that's different something that's out there but the reason why savile row is so well respected and loved is because you know a, a classic suit is timeless a well-fitted classic suit is timeless and it won't go out of, of fashion. Look at James Bond in Dr. No. Half of the things he wears in Dr. No would be worn now by gentlemen and would still be widely accepted from his watch to his suit, to his shoes, to the accessories, maybe not his uh, flannel toweling bathing suit all in one that he wears in one of the scenes. That might be slightly <laughs> round upon. But um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm completely guilty of wearing skinny trousers and a short jacket and pointy shoes and looking you know ridiculous but i think with age comes a, a level of uh, you know respect for yourself and a level of investing in your clothes to know that they're going to last rather than buying something that will only last for the 12 months of that season let's let's say but as in respect for trends of suits now yeah the, the slim fit is definitely gone i mean that's probably that that went out about 5 or 6 years ago now you're you're seeing far more pleated trousers, double pleated trousers at the top, a looser leg to a cropped um, tighter ankle. You're seeing a lot more unstructured jackets. So this is where the British tailors um, don't do so well and the Italian tailors have come through because they create a much softer silhouette through the jacket. Still beautifully fitted, but using a lot of finer, softer materials. And it's just a more comfortable style. And that's become very popular over the last two years, certainly. Um, this soft draped style, which 
Anderson and Shepard on, on Savile Road do to an extent, but the Italian tailors tend to do very, very well. Whereas as Brit- British tailors tend to be more structured with more military, basically, with a heavier shoulder pad and more structure and shape through the, the chest and the waist and a longer jacket. So as far as trends go, yeah, we're, we're going down a softer route with looser pleated trousers at the minute. And I expect that will carry on for the next sort of four or five years before any other trend starts to, to come in. And also due to lockdown, you've got the casual tailoring, the, you know, um, elasticated cashmere trousers, let's say, for when you're laying around the house or the um, knitted jackets, you know, which which are sort of like a cardigan-esque can be quite nice for just heading out uh, with a T-shirt or some chinos on or something like that. So the casual side of tailoring has come out, but for, for me, you know, I still sell and make the most timeless elegant suits for for gentlemen that, and and ladies that that wear suits all the time or even just every now and then they just want to have that item that makes them feel the most confident so if if you follow the trends then you know you'll be looking at gucci that they are probably the most popular when it comes to sort of trend driven tailoring um but then you only need to turn to savile row and to the big names on savile row to see that everybody still cuts uh, a classic suit and and that's the go-to bread and butter thing that we all do would you say Savile row has fully embraced elasticated pants it's getting there it gives gives and hawks would would have that off the peg at number one Savile row i've made elasticated tailored trousers when i was at norton and sons as part of a suit it's it's never going to be big money makers on Savile row because the essence of slouchy clothing let's say isn't the most flattering whereas people come to a tailor like me because they want to flatter their body shapes as best they can um, and they want to feel I guess like a suit of armor they want to dress up ready for the occasion that they're going to rather than dress down to be at home and slouch around on the sofa. I've often heard about several row suits that they spend a lot of time sort of correcting your imperfections uh that you always have one shoulder that's a little low or you have a posterior that protrudes uh, and so forth is that still a, a thing yeah you know trying to flatter the body shape is is the most important part of good tailoring and some some places like you say with a drop shoulder uh, most of us gentlemen have one shoulder lower than the other I'd say seven or eight out of 10 tend to be on the right-hand side. And I don't know why that is. I still can't find a scientific answer as to why the right-hand side is dropped further down. That makes your right arm longer than your left arm. And it also means that sometimes your right hip is slightly inset and your left hip is higher. So that can affect the trouser waist as well. Um, So yes, it's about accentuating the great parts of you. So maybe you've got a broad chest and broad shoulders So you accentuate the good parts and we politely, uh, delicately hide the bad parts, let's say. So the beauty with bespoke tailoring is there is a fitting process. So the garment that you first try on is in the fabric that you've chosen, but it's covered with all this white stitching, which is temporarily holding everything in place. So that jacket or trouser or waistcoat or whatever the garment might be can be tried on. And then we can talk about how it goes in the fitting. Take the garment off, rip it back completely flat 
let's say, let it out on the shoulders or take it in at the waist or make the jacket longer or change the pitch of the sleeve. We can then put it back together again in a temporary situation, temporary way, try the jacket on you again and see how those alterations have affected it. And then the customer can say, yep, that feels much better and it looks much better. I'm really happy with that. And then the garment can be made, the pockets are put in, the linings are put in, the facings are put on, the collars put on. So it's a process of building a garment around somebody. And if somebody has a particular, you know, maybe they're stooped, maybe their neck sits quite far forwards, or maybe they stand very erect and their shoulders are back and their chest is pushed out, that fitting process allows us to take the garment and mold it to the body in a way which is the most comfortable and most flattering way possible. Sometimes it's not about flattering the body. Sometimes it's just about making something that the customer can wear and feel good in because maybe they are a large person. Maybe they're very tall and they just can't find things off the peg that will fit them. Maybe they're very short and don't find things off, off the peg that fit them. And, you know, maybe they have shoulders that really cannot work on anything off the peg and have to be made handmade. So th there's you know, there's people that need to have bespoke clothing because they can't fit in anything else. And there's other people that just want to wear the best of the best and feel wonderful in a beautiful handmade suit. So, yeah, you, you are correct. It's about looking at the body shape. You know, if you if you ever walk down Savile Row and see two tailors talking to each other, they're not looking in each other's eyes. They're like this, looking at each other's suits, trying to pick out, you know, <laughs> eyes darting, looking at, you know, I got sick of talking to people on the street in Savile Row because there would always be a comment of going you need to pick up that shoulder a quarter of an inch and you go I know I know I know stop commenting on it or that lapel's a bit big isn't it you know those trousers are a bit wide what, what size shoe are you there's always this kind of judgment going on of each other's suits in a, in a really like beautiful way sort of creative way but yeah that's that's what Savile Row tailoring is it's the process of taking the cloth and molding it to your body shape in a way that is comfortable and flattering now this is clearly very different from uh, made to measure and off the peg which is the sort of lowest f form of uh, suiting i suppose um what would be the main difference between made to measure and bespoke so my training on savile row as a bespoke tailor was i say as a cutter taking measurements from the body and then I would personally take those measurements with my tape measure and my set square, and I would chalk out a two-dimensional pattern on the card. That's through my skill and what I've learned and my system of how to transform those measurements into a two-dimensional pattern. That two-dimensional pattern is put onto the fabric, which has been ordered specifically for that job. So if you ordered a Super 120s navy flannel, we would order three meters of that because that's how much we need. It's placed onto the fabric, it's chalked out, and there are extra bits of fabric that are left in strategic places for the fittings. It's then cut out by hand, and each garment is given to a specialist tailor, the jacket tailor, trouser tailor, waistcoat tailor, who would then put the garment together. They would do everything on that individual garment. And then that garment is fitted to you. And that can be two or three times. It can be four or five times, depending on what level of fit is required. And the tailors then finish off the garments. And we have extra tailors who sew the buttonholes and the linings, a tailor who does the pressing, and then the buttons are put on at the very end. So that's bespoke. It's all handmade. It's all done by individual craftsmen who are specialists in their area, specialist jacket tailors. 
and a specialist jacket tailor who might do dinner suits as their specialism, a jacket tailor who might do tweed jackets as their specialism, a trouser tailor who might do um, plus fours and shooting or, or riding wear as their specialist. When it comes to made-to-measure, made-to-measure has, as you might be able to see in, my, in the background, predetermined blocks or samples that you try on. If you're a size 42, you would try on a size 42 jacket in a style that that tailor that I had created, let's say. When you try on that sample, you discuss with me how you would change it. Okay, the shoulders are a bit wide, so we'll bring the shoulders in. It's a bit loose underneath the arm, so we'll take in the chest or we'll drop the armhole. We'll shape the waist and we'll make the jacket this long. And then the details that you've chosen, your fabric, your linings, your style details, along with the measurements that I've taken, are sent to a factory. Most of the factories tend to be in Europe. And then it's done by uh, technology, basically. All these details are input into a system. A pattern is drafted through a, a, a computer system. The garment is cut out by computers using the fabric that you've chosen. And then the suit goes into a production line process where one person maybe does the internals, one person maybe puts the collar on, one person will make the sleeves and insert sleeves. And at the end of it, they send you back a garment which is ready to wear and you try that garment on and you make any final tweaks. So it's quicker than bespoke, but it is made in a factory. Um, so there's not as much hand finishing or hand structure as there is in bespoke. But there's not to say that some of the Italian factories do a lot of hand finishing and hand making and, and the made to measure process. But it is a very different process to bespoke where everybody is specialized and doing a lot of handwork. It takes 60 working hours to make a two-piece suit in bespoke tailoring. So you can, you can guess how much work actually goes into the structure of the jacket and actually the, the hand sewing that is, is built into the garment to give it the shape and give it to the character that it needs. And I, I do have made to measure tailoring as part of my offering at Nicholas Simon because it, it's a more affordable product which uh, um, which speaks to a wider range of customers because people want to be able to customize their clothing and bespoke is obviously a much higher much more luxury product which um, not everybody can can afford the cost of bespoke. Hmm. We'll get into the cost in a bit I think but one thing that I've has sort of kind of always stopped me from spending a lot of money on buying a suit is now I don't know I'm probably not unique in finding that my body shape does change quite a bit over time uh, quite a, a few kilos up and down and I'd, I'd sort of be considering now which point in my sort of weight cycle would I go and get a suit and would I then have to be on a constant diet forever after or there's, there's really no way of compensating for that is there it's a the body's a moving target you know when when is the right time to have a suit made if your body does fluctuate the important thing with bespoke tailoring is that as i alluded to earlier the ex, extra material which is left in the jacket uh, at the shoulders along the down the waist uh down the center back at the bottom of the sleeves at the bottom of the jacket there is six inches in a jacket, which means that the bespoke tailoring can let out that jacket six inches. Likewise, the jacket can be taken in, not as much as six inches, but it can be shaped to you if you do lose weight. So the point of this sort of sustainability factor with bespoke tailoring is huge is because if 
if that garment's with you for five years and you do gain a bit of weight, then the, the jacket can be altered to be bigger. Likewise, the jacket can be altered to be smaller. In the trousers, sometimes you can leave up to eight inches of extra in the waist of the trouser. So as you go through life, and let's face it, we all expand, then the waist can expand with you. And the same with the inside leg and the outside leg. There's about four or five inches in the inside and outside leg. So if anything, for any reason, excess is left in there so that you can make it bigger and you can shape it smaller as well. And we've had instances of somebody not needing a suit anymore and passing it down through generations and it being retailored to fit somebody else because I want these garments that I make to last an absolute lifetime because I'm sick of fast fashion and all the ridiculous waste of textiles we have in this world. So if I can cre create a suit that is passed down through generations, then I've done my job correctly. So there is no optimum time for you to start having a suit made if you know your body shape changes. But the point of a bespoke suit is that it will change with you throughout your life. I would expect at least my bespoke suits to last 10 years. And with my service, every year, I will give that suit a service. I will get it back from you and I will take it and I'll say, how does it fit? Are you happy with how it fits? Yes, I'm happy with how it fits. Right, well, then I'll check all the, all the seams are okay. I'll check the buttons aren't coming loose. I'll check the stitching all around the collar. And if there's anything that needs repairing, I repair it and give it back to you. So therefore, the lifespan of that suit carries on. And like your car, if you don't service your car regularly, you run the risk of something majorly bad happening and a huge bill to try and fix it. Hence, if you rip a hole in your trousers, then the huge bill will either be a new pair of trousers or trying to fix the hole in the trousers that you've got. Therefore, if I can give you a service every, every year to avoid that from happening, then that's what we do. So I always get people ask, saying to me when, I'm, when they're getting married, oh, I'm going to lose loads of weight. Mm, are you? Yeah. Are yeah. you? <laughs> really? It'll be back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So with, with bespoke tailoring, there's lots of uh, space to come in and out and, and move and change the jackets. With made-to-measure tailoring or off the peg, they don't leave those kind of inlays, um, extra material inside the jacket and trousers that allows you to be um, more flexible with the shape of, of things over the time. Hmm. So if you do need to sort of let it out four inches or take it in four inches, is that a, a major process of retailering or is it less of a process? It, I mean, it, it really depends. It's, it's sort of where where does the weight get put on not everybody puts weight on just through the midriff maybe it can come on through the chest maybe it can come on through the legs if you know or as gents tend to get older they might pick up cycling or running or triathlons or something ridiculous which means that the weight drops off them and therefore we have to take it in a hell of a lot and you know that is a lot of work to have to take the sleeves out of a garment to reshape the whole of the back to put the sleeves back in you know a new size sleeve change the length of everything it's a lot of work but you know buying a new suit would be a lot more work and a lot more expensive but if you spend a quarter of the price of that suit on fixing the one you've got then you might have a suit for the next five years i suppose with the middle-aged pursuits it's a case of the jacket dropping down a size but the thigh is going up three sizes yes or the calves calves increasing from the cycle Which can be tricky mm. yes definitely <laughs> 
how would you describe Savile Row versus sort of everyone else? Because there's clearly a very concentrated artisan movement on the on the row, as we call it in the know. Uh, but there's also sort of a million other tailors just looking around Britain, but also further afield. But Savile Row has this sort of aura of mystique around it. It's it's the epicenter of men's tailoring for the for the world. There's no doubt about it. You know, I think I think even in in Japan they have a word for suit, which is sabi row, which is Savile Row. It's the direct translation is Savile Row. That's how much it's respected around the world. Now, Savile Row is diluted a lot. You know, especially through COVID, people like myself and I can I know six or seven other people who were made redundant from their jobs have gone out and started their own business, whether that's in London, I'm in Warwickshire, I've got friends out on the Kent coast, um, you know, gents up on the northern borders have all started doing what they do further out because people understand now that you don't have to just go to Savile Row for a handmade suit. There are enough of us dotted around the country, but still not enough, not enough of us to, 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 to warrant, you know, in Warwickshire, let's say there's three of us that do what we do, real traditional bespoke tailors. There are a lot of people out there that claim to be tailors that are just selling made to measure and off the peg, but haven't got a clue how to do the sewing and the cutting or anything decent. So what is it about Savile Row? Well, it's the history. It's London. London has its own draw in itself of the well-dressed man and the bowler hats and the sort of beauty that is London and Parliament and all that kind of um, draw. Um, but, you know, Italy has a wonderful history of tailoring. You know, Japan is really, really developing in their skills when it comes to tailoring. But everybody still looks to Savile Row for, for the history and for the fact that those tailors are still going. Now, Norton and Sons that I worked for is 200 years old this year. 200 years old and these companies need to be celebrated for that fact that a business can go through all of the ups and downs and still be going 200 years later and I think that's an absolute credit to Savile Row and the tailors that work in them that still produce such an amazing um, array of, of, of standards and, and I whilst I'm based in Warwickshire all my bespoke tailoring is made on Savile Row by the teams that I've always worked with so I would never have my clothes made anywhere else, bespoke-wise, made to measure. I have to get them made in a factory in Europe because there's nowhere in the UK that does them to the right standards. But for bespoke, Savile Row is the only place I would ever trust, and the tailors on Savile Row is the only place I'd ever trust to make my clothing. What do you think the future is for Savile Row, given that, uh, like yourself now, um, is no longer on Savile Row but do you think it's still vibrant is it still necessary are they with the times uh, are there I think the number of tailors sort of proper tailors on the row has gone down over the years yeah I think the difficulty is is the cost of being on Savile Row the tailors are the tailors are all brilliant I would say to anybody who ever came to see me or anybody on Savile Row no matter which tailor you go to on Savile Row you will get an incredible suit because we all know each other and we all support each other in a friendly rivalry kind of way. It's the cost of being on Savile Row. It puts, it puts a limit on who can be on there. And, you know, places like Huntsman and uh, Henry Paul can afford that high rents and, you know, their business 
businesses are far bigger than say Norton and Sons where I worked where it's a small independently owned business it's not like Geeves and Hawks which was part of a huge Chinese corporation that owned it I don't think they do anymore but um it the difficulty of several row is the cost of being on there um and the credibility of being on there but I think people are now looking further afield and people are trying out the different tailors that are around because they they know that they can still get a brilliant suit from somebody that isn't on Savile Row and doesn't have to pay that premium of being on Savile Row. You know, it's it's £5,000 for a suit on Savile Row starting price. And that is a is a premium not everybody wants to, to pay for a bespoke suit. But if you look around, there are other people doing suits like myself from £2,000 because I don't have to have the costs of a huge Mayfair workshop hanging over me. Um, all my all my tailors are based in their own workshops on Savile Row or in London. So I think Savile Row is always will be relevant and it will always have the draw of that beauty and heritage. But it's getting smaller and smaller and coffee shops are opening and readyware shops are opening and it's diluting it to a point where it might not be so recognisable anymore. And my worry is it goes the way of Carnaby Street, where Carnaby Street used to be so iconic it's now i don't want to go down this this negative route that i might be going down but it's just (laughs) it's a joke it's an absolute joke and they've ruined what was uh, you know an iconic street and my worry is that savile row could go the same way if if rents keep going up because rents are ludicrous on that street and there's supposed to be um a ruling by Westminster Council that if a tailor leaves Savile Row, it has to be replaced with another working tailor. How a coffee shop gets away with that? Well, you tell me, perhaps because the coffee shop is owned by one of the owners of one of the bigger firms on Savile Row and can afford to pay the rents. And yes, they have embroiderers working downstairs, but not tailors. So it's possible to get around the rules set by Westminster Council, but not really beneficial to the street itself no it just sounds a bit corrupt um i think the fact that there are still that many tailors on savile row is a sort of testament to the total stubbornness of the companies who actually still sit there whilst it must have been easier for them to find more appropriate uh, places and cheaper places to be um when it comes to the landlords i think I won't sort of claim any sort of personal responsibility there, but I think the Norwegian Oil Fund owns a lot of the Savile Row and Regent Street properties. So I'm really sorry about that, and I'll have words with the right people. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> Please do. Um, now, over the sort of pandemic times, and I hate to bring it up, there has been whispers from people saying that, oh, the suit is dead. It's all uh, elasticated pants now and uh, work from home wear. Do you think the suit is dead at all? Slightly wonky, a bit under the weather? <laughs> Slightly wonky. Um, no, not at all. It, it depends what world you move in. If, you're, if you were working in an office and don't work in an office anymore and don't need to wear a suit anymore, then to you, the suit might be dead. But I travel to London every week to see customers that work in finance and banking um, and hedge funds and such, and, and they always have to wear suits. And and there's a there's a large community of people that want to wear suits. You know, it's not just because this this feeling of 
I worked when I worked in Savile Row, I worked with a lot of people at JP Morgan Bank and their dress codes were relaxed within the last seven or eight years, which is ridiculous to think for a bank. But some of the customers I dealt with still wanted to wear suits and in fact wore more suits just as a middle finger to the, the dress codes that they were being relaxed because in banking, you, you, surely you have to have that respect of wearing a suit for your customers that are coming in and have and have that kind of business relationship, then you have to wear a suit. But suddenly they started relaxing their dress code. So I seriously don't think the suit is dead and it never has died through two world wars. Who knows, you know, this, epi- this pandemic, um, all kinds of fashion trends and it's still going and Savile Row's still there and people still respect the suit. And whenever things go more casual, it always goes back up to being formal again. It's it's the nature of the beast that people dress down. And then after a bit of dressing down, they go, I'm bored of this now. Let's dress smart again. And I'm I'm personally backing dinner suits for Christmas because I think this Christmas, fingers crossed, this government don't lock us down again. But I think Christmas parties are going to be huge this year. I think, you know, work teams of work friends that need to go out and celebrate after missing, maybe missing out last year. I'm saying, you know, get dressed up, wear something beautiful, wear something wonderful, enjoy yourselves, go out and and make the most of it. So with every lull in suit wearing, like the pandemic, there will always come a boom. And, you know, even in the trends you see on on the runways, there's always tailoring. It'll always be there and everybody will always come back to the tailors of Savile Row and people like me who run my own business to to direct them to the right things to wear. I guess at some level it's also, if even if you don't work in an office and have a requirement for it, it's also a sort of good um, default uh, festive uh, dressing up occasion attire in norway we have our national costumes which people pay absolute fortunes to have made we're talking sort of several row basic suit money for one because the fabrics are so special everything's embroidered in norway all the bits and pieces and whatnot Um, mainly women have them but the men also increasingly have them and like i said i mean big money but they bet pretty much wear them once a year on 17th of May, the National Norwegian Day. But a proper suit would be more universal and usable. Um, One of the problems with the Norwegian national costumes are they're incredibly thick, boiled wool for the most part. 17th of May, at least in the southern parts of Norway, tends to be a very warm day. (laughs) On the great mix. (laughs) So you have people, they are truly suffering. Uh, Up north, where I really am from, uh, 17th of May was always pretty much guaranteed snow, so it was more appropriate there. But uh, yeah, I could I could definitely see the the suit coming into its forty there. Was, there. there was a quite a trend I was seeing um, a couple of years ago on Savile Row where there was a lot of Scandinavian and Nordic um, weddings that were opting for white tie, which is the most formal garment you can wear. So you've got black tie, which is your tuxedo and dinner suits, but white tie is your tails and white um, waistcoat with white bow tie and there are not many events anymore in the UK that you have to wear white tie to unless you're going to an evening dinner with royalty attending so there was there was a trend of um, Norway and Sweden of people wearing white tie to weddings this very regal um, 
level of wedding that we hadn't seen in in countries for for a while so that was quite interesting i'm not sure if it's so much anymore but it'd be interesting to see if that was still going on now i don't sort of move in those circles but i think i can say with a large level of confidence that those sort of events don't happen at all in norway now or ever <laughs> <laughs> so if people are dressing up like that they uh well yeah i guess also the thing is you know <laughs> we talk about suits because that's what we're known for but we do make casual clothing you know gilets um casual trousers casual chinos you know anything you want can actually be made bespoke i've made coats for dogs for customers dogs and you know blankets and anything that you can think of shirts as well so it doesn't have to all be very formal it can be a lot more stripped back casual t-shirts with suits or sweaters and jackets and that sort of thing so it does that the scale does go from formal down to casual as well. Now that is actually very interesting because I'm what I refer to as a little teapot, short and stout. Um, and it is really hard really to find clothes that fit because chest is too big for the arm length and so forth. But is it, is it even feasible to sort of think that you could just drop buying regular off-the-shelf clothes and just have nice things made bespoke? It certainly is. If you, if you look at your spending habits, you know, let's say you wanted a nice tweed jacket that would last you all year round, something you could wear with a sweater to go out for dinner or something you could wear with a shirt and tie and flannel trousers if you wanted to be a little bit more formal. Now, let's say from myself, a tweed jacket would be about £1,800, you know, if that lasts you 10 years, that's £180 a year. And that's less than a, a, a Marks and Spencer's jacket. So if you're talking about investment into your clothes and you know exactly what kind of clothes you wear and how you want to wear them, then yes, you can invest in a bespoke wardrobe. It's about building a wardrobe that works for you and your environment and not having to have something brand new all the time but having something that you really want to wear because you love it, you know it looks great on you and you feel great when you wear it. That's the point of, of designing something with a tailor like me is it's, it's your design. You choose the fabric, the lining, the embroidery, the detail, the undercolor melting, the color of the buttons, the color of the buttonhole thread, everything you think of you can design. And then we build it together. It's a collaboration between me, the tailor, and you, the customer because you've got to wear this stuff for the rest of your life and I'm the one who's going to build it for you. So it's the desire to want to wear that should outstrip having to have the, the latest jacket you see that gets released from Gucci or Prada or whoever you shop with. It's quite strange to, to think how we've been seduced away from that sort of quality way of having things made by marketing into this sort of endless cycle of buying. Now, there's been a lot of talk recently about buying better, buying less, aka spending more, really. Uh, but that's led me to wonder about what is it about certain clothes that make us cherish them? And is that something that can be planned? Um, can we make stuff that you just know someone will love for a long time and hence use up? It's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of clothing becomes uh, sentimental because of the memories you get from wearing it. You know, uh, 
I think you told me about your wedding suit, which I definitely think we should talk more about um, <laughs> at some point. Or we'll just, or we'll just glance or over not. it. Um, but yeah, the sort of emotive side of things is is just that the memories that come with wearing things. And again, this I alluded to this a lot, and it sounds quite cheesy, but it's it's not. It's the fact that you love wearing the clothes that you make because you're invested in them, not only financially but passionately for what you've done. If you see something. Uh, you know on the tv and you think oh that looks nice i might buy that that's different to i've been thinking of this garment for the last year and it's an overcoat and i want the pockets to look like this and the lining has to be this perfect color and this detail underneath the collar has to be finished this way and i want to be able to wear a suit underneath it but i'd also like to be able to wear a chunky sweater underneath it that kind of level of thought and investment in your own head is what makes these clothing so special. Because if your friend, you take the dogs out for a walk and your friend goes, wow, that jacket's really cool. Well, I like those pockets. You go, right, I designed these pockets. And this is why I designed these pockets, because I've seen this and I liked that. And the tailor said this, but I said no. So you've got to do that. There's a story behind every kind of part of your your bespoke garment. And if it's a if it's a, a field coat that you're out, collars popped, your hands are in the pockets, you've got uh, you've got a waterproof layer, it's got a waterproofing on the top, you've got bellows pockets to put all your stuff in, your dog, your bags for your dog poop and that sort of stuff. You know, you've built that for your benefit and your use. And it feels amazing when you put it on. I mean, that surely makes you want to wear stuff. And every time you wear it, you feel a bit of confidence and a bit of pride of, of that. And you know it's going to last you. And that's where your, your suede elbow patches and your, you know, your, your suede trims come in. Because as the garment starts to look a bit battered and a bit worn, we keep it going. We keep adding to it. We can take the sleeves out and add new sleeves in. We can take the linings out and put new linings in. The, the scope to keep these garments going is, is there because we've got the skill to do that. So... Yeah, you're very right. We are seduced into going and just buying what's brand new and what the next thing that David Beckham's wearing because he's got a new jacket on and everybody wants to wear what David Beckham's wearing. Fine, I get that. But, you know, build your wardrobe for yourself, not for what somebody else is wearing. That's the key, I believe. Um, fewer pieces, but ones that you really want to wear much more of the time. Hmm. That's sort of what I'd like to get into. Uh, but I... I have this fear of, and I do see a lot of people that once they sort of get into the better stuff, they really just start recreating that behavior and buying more of that. Uh, we have a, a local um, uh, shoe shop that sells these Edward Green shoes. They're about a grand a pop. And people start off with one pair. Oh, that's my shoes for life. And then they get the made to order mailing list and it just starts racking up. <laughs> So they're not, not buying one pair for life. They've got shoes that sort of keep the family in shoes for generations to yeah, come. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? If investing in, in a single piece that will last you forever that you will wear and then being snagged by that feeling of, I love this, I want more, which is great for somebody like me. But real honesty, I really struggle to sell so many navy suits to somebody because I'm like, well you've got two or three navy suits now you really don't need any more because i do worry i am i am worried about the environment i am worried about the imprint we're having on the on on the planet and and the amount of textiles that we waste every year because we do so badly waste 
amounts of textiles and throw clothes away and it's just not good so i as a tailor have to have the the, the fourth forethought to say right i'm not selling you any more navy suits now because you've got enough what you want to be looking at now is this a jacket some casual trousers to build a wardrobe that works when i was on Savile row we had a customer who one year bought 12 navy suits i mean for business that's fantastic but really who needs 12 navy suits so there's definitely a balance there of having a a conscience about the environment and what we're making and how it's having an effect and then also being able to pay myself a bit of money and be able to eat every month as well so yeah it's it's an interesting trend as to investing in something let's say a wedding suit you know guys might buy themselves the only bespoke thing they might buy is a wedding suit but they still buy the suit for the wedding as opposed to a suit for life and i try and i try and explain mm. to them okay your wedding's got this color scheme but five years down the line you won't need that color scheme why not just have a really beautiful classic suit and have the color scheme in your accessories that can be changed and that way you've got a mm. suit for life rather than a wedding suit for life and some people get it and some people don't but it's again it's my job as a tailor to educate people on the whys and the hows i get the impression that weddings especially in the uk not so much in norway um a lot of uh, surplus clothing is generated through weddings yeah and how ridiculous is it that the notion that the bride spends a fortune on a dress that is only worn once and the tradition for men is to rent a suit that somebody else has worn for two or three days yet the guy is the only one that could wear that suit again over and over and over and over and over again if they invested in it but yet they don't they just go and hire something and when you hire a suit you look worse than if you just bought something cheap off the peg because hire suits are terrible and they're not great for the environment because the amount of dry cleaning and travel that goes on with them renting clothing isn't as great for the environment as people hoped it would be so yeah the surplus clothing the waistcoats that are bought just for one day or the suits that are bought for the groomsmen and the the little page boys that get thrown away not good for the environment no no um sort of looping back to my wedding suit um this was uh, about 91 i think i was 24 uh I can remember it was burgundy, but I can't remember ever seeing it again after the wedding, which was quite weird and also strangely comforting. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I am at a place in life now where a suit actually would be would be quite nice. I have this hankering for a sort of uh, olive green one, olive green wool. I think that would be really Very nice. Very versatile green. But uh, speaking of fabrics, now. Uh, just today, in fact, uh, I released the podcast with uh, Sam Goats from Woven in the Bone, who I believe has collaborated with you on some fabric. Yeah, I, I would you like to talk I about that a bit? Across Sam, actually, I saw she made some tweets for Anderson and Shepherd on Savile Row, um, and they were just beautiful. And I mean, I have no idea about the looms and the things that she she works with, but it's the most fascinating thing I've ever seen when she sits at her loom and uses the feet to sort of power the machine and the things are flying across and i have very very little idea of how that works and i had a customer who was really very creative and wanted a specific tweed that we just couldn't find anywhere and i said right well let's talk to to sam up in up in the hebrides and and 
like like my passion for for tailoring like your nick your passion for clothing like she just within a few minutes knew exactly what the customer wanted she sent us some samples the customer chose the colors and that was it you know and and she works with tailors she she doesn't sell directly to the the consumer she'll only work through tailors and um it's just been fascinating to see how that process works and again it's something i'd love to learn more of of how fabric is created in the different ways and and i'm actually allergic to tweed as i cut the tweed out i actually sneeze you know profusely and and end up having a bit of a meltdown from all the tweed particles in the air so it's not my favorite thing to work with but i'm really looking forward to getting getting my hands on this tweed and creating um we haven't actually decided what we're going to create with it but it's this beautiful herringbone with blues and reds and purples and it's going to be a very striking garment when it's made that's for sure that must be a sort of next level power move for a guy when he's out walking his dog and this innocent stranger questions his attire and he starts up his lecture and he can add in that it's a custom made tweed as well yeah yeah it's a different level isn't it of going into customization but in in honest sense, a custom tweed isn't that expensive. You know, for something that's made in the UK and made by very talented artists, it really isn't as expensive as you'd think. Um, obviously, then you've got to make the clothes out of it. That adds to the to the costs. But uh, it's my duty as a tailor to support anybody in the UK that makes fabric and cloth and supplies um, British-made garments you know i only use british fabric i won't use italian wool i won't use anything that's that's made outside of the uk because i believe we are the best at making bespoke clothing and making fabric and cloth so i will champion anybody in the uk all the mills of you know in somerset in huddersfield in bradford all of those places are amazing at what they do and unfortunately have struggled a lot over the years and need the support of every single person that, that can support them so to have a customer that has invested in some bespoke tweed from sam at Weaver in the bone i think is something i need to be pushing as much as humanly possible to support each and every one in our trade i think that's a very very valuable point a bit about supporting each other and building links because for the most part you're not in competition but together you'd be a much stronger unit and regarding the price of fabric i'm often surprised by um someone will say oh this jacket why is it so expensive oh but it's harris tweed but harris tweed doesn't actually cost that much per meter um not that much more than the cheaper one but it's sort of the brand is used to sort of pump up the price yeah and uh, like you say for such a beautiful beautiful fabric like harris tweed which resembles the the environment it's made from it's stunning the story you get from tweed but it's so hearty and robust but for the cost of it, it it's pennies really when you think about it and for how long it lasts tweed is bulletproof and you know if you get a tweed jacket you'll get 10-15 years wear out of it guaranteed unless you're rolling around in the snow or you know going paintballing in it then maybe not but um yeah i think it's it's a lot less than people think or expect and that's why i have we i as a tailor have to support that because 
it's down to us to to educate people as to why these fabrics are so good and why they do look so brilliant and why they are perfect to, to tailor with and work with. I think also if more people saw the actual Harris Tweed weavers sitting there on their own in the shed with the radio on, feet pumping away mm. cheerfully, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a pretty strong story. And uh, you sort of think, wow, that person has actually made my tweed working into the night on their old loom. <laughs> it's just so yeah, brilliant. It's, it's a fantastic thing. And there's a guy, Donald John Mackay, who, I, I is it Luskin Tyre? bay looking tire beach yeah. he's, he's in this tiny little shed on the beach in the most picturesque beach you'll ever see and he's just sat in the, his little shed doing exactly what he said working away and it's the most unassuming thing you'll see but it creates the most beautiful things and it's so understated it's unbelievable so yeah we, it needs to be supported a little fun fact there, those beaches with the blue uh, water and the white sand are apparently used in movies when they want to show beaches in Thailand because they're so much more perfect than the beaches in Thailand are these days. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, Scotland itself is beautiful anyway, isn't it? It's just a beautiful country. So, yeah, great, great that something beautiful comes out of a beautiful country. It's, uh, it's really... Um, it's an adventure going to the Hebrides and uh, and poking around there. It's uh, wonderful. It reminds me very much of the extreme north of Norway, and the people are much the same, very friendly. A um, couple of points in closing. Uh, are buttonholes still, still sewn by hand? Yes, they are. Um, buttonholes on the cuff, sewn by hand on the fronts, and the lapel hole, because it's the most visible one, all sewn by hand using silk. That must be quite a task. Well, let's put it this way. I know how to do a buttonhole, but my buttonholes are terrible. So much so, I actually drove an hour to uh, a neighbouring tailor to ask their tailor to put a button, uh, four buttonholes in for me. And then I drove an hour back. That's how important the buttonholes are, is that if they're done badly, or if they're done by machine, those in the know will know straight away. Because... The beauty of a handmade buttonhole is not only is it stronger, but it's beautifully done and they can actually be re-sewn as well as they as they wear out throughout the years. You can re-sew them to keep them going. Now, as someone with an eye for the details that I'm sure strong opinions, I have seen men wear some of their cuff buttons undone because they like to show off that they have real cuffs are they wankers or <laughs> is this a thing? Well, as, as someone who's got the bottom one undone, I would say, yes, they are wankers. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> okay, it's, yeah. it's, I mean, yes, it's a, it's a sign of affluence if you have four handmade buttonholes. But realistically, no one's ever going to undo more than one or two buttonholes because that's just ridiculous. Unless you're Miami Vicing, you know, and rolling your sleeves up to your elbows. But it, it, it just becomes another detail mm. that people can talk about. And I would always do four buttons on a cuff, two that work and two that don't. Right, because it doesn't really show off that the buttonholes are hand-sewn, does it? It just shows that they are actually buttonholes. True. And I think... True. But, but yeah. you know, if, if you are going to do that, if you are going to reveal the buttonholes, then they should be under more scrutiny. So if you do see somebody with their buttons undone, maybe go and check out and see 
if you can tell if they are handmade or not because you'll know straight away i think they i think they might just be trying to lure in the unsuspected because i do know that if someone asks me something about what i'm wearing most of the time there will be some story to it and they might just innocently have asked or commented which is my opportunity to launch into my speech about this object which they instantly regret <laughs> asking about <laughs> yeah they thought they had no idea what was coming but they they got themselves into it anyway 30 minutes on the hebrides starting <laughs> now <laughs> oh god uh, in one of my early recordings, uh, one of my co-hosts um, had a great fascination for Patrick Grant. Now, I believe he still owns Norton and Sons. Now, the question that was asked was, what does Patrick Grant smell like? You're probably the closest I've come to anyone who can Yeah, I can. That. I've fitted in many times. I, I've been on New York trips with him. Um, he's a wonderful guy. Um, really fantastic man. He gave me a lot of opportunities in my career. What does he smell like? Well, uh, there's there's an, a couple of customers at Nornison's that smell better because they come into the fitting room and they their smell just stays there forever. And I find myself standing in the fitting room after our fitting going, oh, this is amazing. What does Patrick smell like? He smells like <laughs> Scotland and, <laughs> I don't know, um, I barely get. I, I barely see him that much, even when I work there, to to get that much of a of a smell of him. But he's he smells of hard work in Scotland. Let's put him that way. He's always he's always grafting, and he's he is one of the busiest men I've ever met. Like a real man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No no, he's, he's 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 great, and he's working on a lot of projects. I know he's filming the new series of Sewing Bee, which has been a great success for the BBC. And I really wish, I'm still in contact with everybody at Norton Sons and I really wish them the best and hope that, you know, everything works out after a difficult time of COVID for everybody on Savile Row. I'm sure it will all bounce back pretty, pretty quickly, uh, especially now that everyone seems intent on uh, sort of picking up where they lost or fell off and, and making it even better than before. Um, interesting sewing bee. Do you see that as a the sort of general interest in sewing now as benefiting the tailoring trade? Not particularly. It's it's fantastic that people want to sew more. I believe everybody should learn the basics of how to take up a pair of trousers or at least sew on a button. I mean, it's ridiculously easy. So it it should be taught to people. I know um, sewing machine sales rocketed during the pandemic, which is fantastic if people actually you know, taking a sewing machine home and, and working. But as for tailoring, it certainly generates more interest um, and more respect for what we do, but it definitely doesn't affect that. I've yet to meet a sewing bee, uh, uh, someone who tunes into the sewing bee, I've yet to meet someone who wants to have something made bespoke. Let's say it's not the sort of demographic mm. that really tends to buy bespoke clothing. They definitely find it interesting, but it definitely doesn't have an effect on the industry in, in, in ways of sales. I find it sort of, I find it very interesting just learning how things come together and seeing all the work that goes into it. And that sort of angle makes me want to have something that has been made in that way. Uh, 
like knowing which zips are better than others, then you start obsessing about that, which of course is a slippery slope. Uh, again, talking about shoes for a grander pair and so forth, which I have managed to avoid. But <laughs> I think once once you know what quality is, you will desire it's un- it. Yeah, it's understanding the, the skill and the talent that goes into it. And the, 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 guys, and the guys and girls in the sewing bee are, are fantastic at what they do and being able to redesign clothes and create this and that. It's not something I could do. I specialize in you know, cutting patterns and sewing for suits. But yeah, it can only serve to help when people understand how much effort goes into making garments by hand in the UK and why things cost what they do when, yes, you could send it to China and have it made for £5, but you know, you then understand the quality of what that garment must be compared to the quality of what the garment must be here. Okay, Nicholas, I think that brings us to uh, to the end. I've really enjoyed uh, our little chat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having and, me. Uh, thank, thank you for, you for having me. me. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks to Richard from Tyler & Tyler for putting us in touch. And uh, Sam from Woven in the Bone for also mentioning you. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> the world is sort of becoming smaller by every podcast. And that was all for this week's episode of Gomology. Thanks to Nicholas Simon for being my guest. You can find him on the web as uh, nicholas-simonco.uk and on Instagram as Nicholas Simon Tailoring. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, uh, just send an email to uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's welldressedad. And you can find the blog with about 600 articles now as welldressedad.com. If you'd like to support the pod, suggest a guest, do get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. And, uh, well, if you'd like to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, that would be brilliant. So, a new episode out next week. Until then, bye-bye.